Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Jordan Silbert is the founder and CEO of Q Mixers, the premium brand of cocktail mixers. The idea for the company came to him when he was drinking top shelf gin mixed with low quality tonic with friends, and he asked himself, shouldn't my tonic be as good as my gin? Next came years of experimentation before he devised the perfect blend of high quality ingredients and ample carbonation that became the brand's first product. Today, the Brooklyn-based company has 11 products and is distributed by all major retailers, in addition to being stocked by discerning bartenders everywhere. Before founding Q Mixers in 2006, Jordan was director of rebuilding initiatives for the Alliance for Downtown New York, where he provided the creative spark to revitalize parts of Lower Manhattan devastated by 9-11. Prior to that, he was director of business development for the startup Equal, which was eventually acquired by Microsoft. At earlier stages in his career as an account executive with iTraffic, he oversaw day-to-day online marketing for Disney.com and was an economic development fellow with the Sonoma County Economic Development Board. Jordan has an MBA from the Yale School of Management and a Bachelor of Arts in Public Policy from Brown University. In this conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer, Jordan discusses his entrepreneurial journey behind the launching of Q Mixtures and how the brand has fared during the age of COVID. Please enjoy this conversation with Jordan Silbert. Well, thank you for joining us. And Jordan, I thought we would start um, by sharing with our listeners the story of Q Mixers, how it came to be, and maybe talk a little bit about how important that story has been in really building the brand. Sure thing. So big picture, Q Mixers, we make a line of spectacular or premium uh, carbonated mixers, you know, tonic water, ginger beer, ginger ale, uh, you know, 11 different flavors uh, that are intended uh, to be used with uh, premium spirits. Kind of the idea is if you're kind of taking your spirit seriously and uh, kind of agonizing over whether uh, you use a certain gin or a certain whiskey or a certain vodka and you mix it with a carbonated mixer, you should have a carbonated mixer with the same uh, quality and sophistication of uh, whatever spirit you're mixing it with. And uh, we're now doing pretty well. We're kind of at every major retailer in the country, um, Kroger, Target, Walmart, Whole Foods, uh, and tens of thousands of bars and restaurants. Um, But that is after, I guess, 14 years of uh, blood, sweat, and tears. Um, So let me tell you quickly how the whole thing started. Uh, So 14, 15 years ago, I used to be a bit younger than I am now. And I used to have or be able to have, you know, three or four or five or eight uh, gin and tonics on a Tuesday night and be pretty good on a Wednesday morning. Um, anyway, uh, I had, I was living at that point in Brooklyn in a, in a beautiful backyard in my apartment. And that night, uh, for whatever reason, we had some friends over and my roommate at the time had like a bottle of Tangeray lying around. So uh, we started making gin and tonic uh, after gin and tonic. And a um, couple drinks in, um, uh, my friend was telling the same stupid story he always tells. And 
I realized that my teeth were a little sticky. And I was like, that's weird. You know, I picked up the bottle of tonic water and saw, you know, 25 grams of high fructose corn syrup, uh, natural and artificial flavors, sodium benzoate. And I'm like, that's kind of weird. I thought tonic water was some kind of like bitter water thing. Um, anyway, one of my good friends, then girlfriends, girl now wife and mother of his two kids, uh, was drinking a Sprite. She, for whatever reason, wasn't drinking that night. So I said, hey, Sarah, can I look at your Sprite for a second? Picked up the can. 26 grams of high fructose corn syrup, natural and artificial flavors, sodium benzoate. I was like, hey, guys, these are the same thing. One's just green and the other one's yellow. Um, and my good friends, being my good friends, were like, whatever, and started talking about 5,000 other things. Um, but gin has a real way of uh, clarifying my thinking. I can kind of see exactly what's important in the world. Um, and, you know, three, four, maybe more drinks in, all of a sudden I realized everything was terrific. You know, it was this warm summer night. We had the string of Christmas tree lights uh, up. Um, uh, best friends of the world there. And uh, it's obviously a bunch of alcohol in my system and looked over at the bottle of Tangeray and was like, wow, that's a pretty bottle. And then looked over at the bottle of Schweppes, you know, it's like a one liter plastic bottle of Schweppes. And I was looking at it and I was like, what a piece of crap. You know, the label was peeling off, you know, it looked like it had been designed in like 1958. Uh, the plastic bottle was dented. Um, obviously I knew what the, was in the liquid in the in, in in the bottle, and I was just like thinking, I was like, why is everything else so great and the tonic water so lousy? And I was like, you know what? There should be a better tonic water. You know what? Put my finger in the air. I'm gonna make a better tonic water. Uh, long story short, I did. Uh, long story, just a little bit longer. Kind of next morning when my head cleared, figured out what tonic water was supposed to be. It's supposed to be water, a little sugar, and this thing called quinine, which was a uh, kind of bitter thing that comes from a bark from a tree, uh, initially from Peru. And so I ordered a bag, uh, started uh, mixing stuff up in my kitchen prototype. And then I found a small, small soda plant to put, put it in like some in a bottle that can be carbonated. And I uh, sold it into um, some of the be very best restaurants in New York City uh, and bars. Um, Gramercy Tavern, Blue Hill at Stone Barns, Milk and Honey, and Little Branch, and then Dean and DeLuca, which at that point was in its heyday of, um, of being kind of the best specialty food store in the country. Um, and then kind of step by step by step by step, um, I started there, and now we have this full line of products uh, that are served at you know thousands and thousands of the better bars and restaurants in the country, everywhere from all the Four Seasons to even all the Buffalo Wild Wings, and then, yeah, just about every major retailer in the country. Um, and it has been a long, long journey. Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible story, and obviously one where as the founder, you have to be sort of the chief marketing officer, yeah. the chief executive officer, probably yeah, yeah. the chief financial officer at a certain point in the in the journey and, you know, et cetera. Um, I'm curious, though, as you think about this, like, it feels like, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, I mean, these guys could have done this, right? Like, why didn't they? Why was this such an unmet need? So what's the real answer? They're like, they're big, big, dumb and fat or big, dumb, and slow. Um, <laughs> okay. And they just like didn't think about it. Uh, there are some specifics of the structure of the tonic and ginger beer and ginger ale market that makes it a little more excusable um, here that, you know, 
same company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, actually owns Schweppes and Canada Dry. Uh, so there's no really reason for them to innovate. Um, and they have different distribution relationships with Coke and Pepsi. Sometimes Coke has one, sometimes Pepsi has the same one. So there's really no one who owns it and pushes it. But I think the real is answer is they're just focused on other things. And uh, they have now actually in the last you know 18 months have noticed how how well we've been doing and kind of our primary competitor fever tree how well they've been doing and have actually tried to come out with stuff um, but you know we always joked you know we raised a couple rounds of uh, funding and people always asked are you worried about the big guys coming out with a product like Schweppes and it's like if Schweppes comes out with a product they're gonna call it Schweppes premium or something like that uh, and lo and behold, uh, they came out with something called like Schweppes 1783, um, which looks not so great, doesn't taste so great, and is just doing horrible in the market. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they use their power to get us kicked out of a place called uh, Hannaford up in um, the uh, the northeast of the United States um, last year. And then they performed so badly that the retailer came back to us this year, um, uh, putting us back in. Um, so these big companies, just this is not what they're good at. Um, and then even when they do have decent products, there's kind of no meat on the bones of kind of the story. Uh, and I think I didn't answer your first question uh, as well as I probably could have. But I think uh, we have this authentic story where there was actual guy behind the thing who made something that was better than what else was out there. Uh, not because he saw like a competitor doing it or, you know, white space in the market, but because he actually wanted to drink it with him and his friends. And I think that story uh, is worth millions or tens of millions of dollars in like kind of marketing that a big slow company would do. There's just, it. every time we say something, it just sticks a lot more because there's kind of something real behind it. That's great. And, and you're right. It solidifies you as a challenger mm -hmm. brand. And there is there is clear challenger brand preference right now among consumers who are, who are tired of, you know, buying the same product from the same company. But the other thing that I think is is really interesting is, not only are you going head to head with these big companies, but you're trying in many ways succeeding to change the format of how the product is delivered. So if you think about in particular on-premise and bars and restaurants, Coca-Cola is going around and installing soda guns everywhere they can. And obviously that's how you get a cheap product distributed in mass. Whereas you're bringing a premium product and a really a very tiny package mm -hmm. that has to be opened individually mm -hmm. Right. And trying to change how the product is consumed. And so I'm just curious, you know, when you think about that and you think about the decisions you've made along the way, is that something that seems to have come naturally? And you were like, look, as a premium product, this is how we're going to package it. Or is it something you've gone back and forth on and you were you were trying to wrestle with? Should we be on the gun and those kinds of no, things? And what has that process like been like? Such an obvious decision for us. So you think about why. Um, you know, Schweppes and Canada Dry and kind of the mainstream soda companies' products were so mediocre is because they treated them like the rest of their products, which is how do you make the cheapest possible thing and then uh, kind of do a little marketing around it? Uh, I started with the proposition, how do you make the most delicious thing? How do you make the thing that's going to make the best gin and tonic or the best Moscow mule? And once you have that perspective, it's pretty obvious that you need a small bottle or small can um, to serve the thing at them. Uh, 
Granted, I started a carbonated mixer business, uh, but nothing drives me more nuts than a flat gin and tonic or a flat um, vodka soda or a flat kind of highball drink. Um, and you don't need to be a genius to figure out, hey, the way to make uh, a gin and tonic fizzier is to start with tonic water that's really fizzy. And you can't you know, like it's impossible to put as much carbonation in a soda gun as it is to put in a little glass bottle or a little glass can. Like at our production facility, if like the carbo cooler blows up, the whole block blows up. And that's because they're throwing a lot of pressure uh, into our bottles. And that just doesn't happen with a soda gun. Um, and the same thing with their plastic uh, pet uh, one liter bottles. Like carbonation, like air, it's actually semi-permeable, those plastic bottles. Like I didn't know this, but I soon learned it. So that thing can't be as carbonated as our, stu as our stuff for uh, uh, any reasonable amount of time. So at the end of the day, the decisions have been pretty easy. Like we approach the thing, how do we make stuff that tastes really, really, really good? And it's really going to give someone a delightful drink. Um, so once you have that orientation, which granted was like, that's my drunken revelation that first night that, hey, my gin and tonic could be better if we use better tonic water. Um, once you had that orientation, a lot of the, those decisions were actually some of the easy ones. Mm -hmm. That's great. And it's, it's, you know, clear North star that then can guide decisions. Yeah, so, totally. and in the very beginning, so as you told this story, you know, you, you started with really the, the, the creme de la creme of customers, right? Gramercy Tavern right. and, right. and the Whole Foods in New York city. Right. Yep. Um, yep. So in those cases, you know, you are, you, here you are, this guy that made this, this premium product and you are literally walking yep. into these buildings and selling it to these people. But at a certain yes. point, you know, you, you've scaled, right? You've gone to where you yep. now are, are, you know, you're no longer the guy carrying a, a case of, yes. you know, a case of tonic water down the street. So, yep. so what did that process look like? And, and was it like a, was there a moment where you went from, you know, being sort of like the home brewed thing to being at scale or was it more of a progression? More of a progression. It was very much, you know, the frog in bo bo uh, boiling water um, where you don't really feel it. And then all of a sudden you look up, it's like, whoa, we're at every Kroger, Albertsons and Target and Publix in the country. Like, that's pretty unbelievable. Um, so part of it, you didn't realize it, just kind of pushed along. Uh, part of the reason I didn't really feel that much is because I am very hands-on. Like I literally was at the plant the very first time it uh, produced it, delivered the first, you know, sold the first cans or bottles, delivered them myself. So I'm very hands-on uh, even today. Uh, like I clearly don't Go, I don't go to the plant agent every time. Uh, I don't make every sales call, but I'm very involved in how we do stuff, um, you know, how we sell things, um, how we make things. So uh, very involved in it. And then it's just, you know, trying to build a business. Uh, and anybody who's built a business goes through the same thing as how do you scale? How do you take the best of what you can do with the best of uh, some experts that you hire and hopefully do a little one plus one equals three? Um, and I think one of the things I've done well is recognize there's stuff that other people do better than me, or at least I'm more experienced than I do. And so on the sales side, uh, about three or four years ago, we had hired the guy who ran William Grant's sales in the United States. That was, uh, you know, Hendrix Gin. Uh, before that, he ran Pernod, which is 
probably the biggest spirit company in the in the country. And then on the grocery side, hired the guy who did Nestle Waters, uh, which is like Perrier and Pellegrino. Um, and then, you know, on the marketing side, hired a woman who led marketing for Godiva. So uh, we brought in some experts and uh, when we kind of combine uh, all of their talents and experience and expertise with uh, a lot of the stuff that I had learned and I guess first and foremost, a better mousetrap, better products, uh, that's when we really started uh, ramping up. Yeah, I mean, it, it it does seem like, you know, you followed that old adage of, you know, hiring people and empowering them um, to do their jobs. And that's helped you scale, you know, to this next level here. Um, yeah. As a Brooklyn started company, you're calling to mind, though, you know, what I would, I guess, deem a cautionary tale from another business down the street from you there, which was Ample Hills yeah. Creamery. And, you know, this yeah. was a, a business that they like you. They started out with a premium product. You know, they had they had yeah. people were were beating down the doors for their ice cream. Um, they they scaled quickly. They entered into a deal with Disney and really almost flamed out just as quickly right they 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 kind of imploded um and it's it's a cautionary tale about scaling at the right pace and and the business fundamentals you know that that you know maybe are necessary also to get there i mean you're a guy you got your mba from yale you're obviously a fundamentals oriented guy but i'm just curious like yeah. as you as you look at this i'm sure you're reflecting on the you know the various successes and failures of others who are trying to do the same kind of things you're trying to do you know, what are the what are the key learnings that you're taking away as you're thinking about building the business? Totally. So I live two blocks away from Ample Hill's first location. And I was there that first weekend when they ran out of ice cream by 11 a.m. on Saturday. Uh, so, yeah, that the whole downfall has hit me really hard. Um, and just obviously their ice cream is fantastic. And I don't know, touch a bummer. Um what we have done differently, and I guess part of that, I, I have a partner, Ben, um, who uh, is, I don't know, it's the competitive, one of the biggest competitive advantages we have is that he, I do a lot of these, uh, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies, uh, and he um, comes on and does more of the operations and finance, and uh, he's my best friend. I've known him since we've been nine. Um, and he's done a great job of introducing uh, incredible financial and operational discipline in, in our organization. Um, and from day one, we've prioritized uh, being able to make our stuff uh, efficiently, uh, reliably, and uh, from a cost perspective, um, in a reasonable fashion. And, you know, we've looked very closely at things like gross margin uh, on literally a, a, a production run by production run basis. And we've made incredible strides as a result over the last you know, dozen years. So we have always kind of focused on the business that we approach this as a business, you know, right when I was in my kitchen, you know, I was just making stuff uh, to drink. But as soon as we kind of turned on the switch that, hey, this is a business, uh, we very much treated it as such. So we made sure uh, all the numbers worked and continued to work. Uh, and then we were actually pretty conservative. Like we um, went through that 2008 uh, recession. We were flying high. It was a year and a half after we had started. We were doing terrifically. Um, and I did a, a fundraise and uh, the day uh, 
Lehman Brothers went down. Uh, I got all these investors who had just given me almost a million dollars, asked me to rip up checks. Uh, so uh, we obviously ripped up the checks and Ben and I went without salaries for nine months. We both moved in with our girlfriends. Uh, well, happy to announce both are our wives now and we each have two lovely kids um so we went through that so as a result we've always been really conservative uh in terms of not spending our last dollar and kind of making sure that every penny that we do spend is spent as uh efficiently as humanly possible well and it's and it's good to have a partner in business that you can trust like that as well and in particular when you're a yin and a yang like it sounds like the two of you are the other thing yep. that's really standing out, though, is, you know, you've mentioned several times uh, being hands on the attention to detail. Yep. Um, and it sounds like you've hired extraordinary people. Um, yep. There's a lot of people that that listen to this podcast who right now may be looking for jobs and would love to work at a place like Humixers. And so, you know, a question that I often ask on their behalf is, you know, when you're when you are interviewing, when you're looking for talent, like. What are the things you're looking for and how do you, you know, how can people sort of prepare themselves, you know, to be a great hire for somebody like you? Yeah. So that's a hard one. And I will say, and they'd all admit it. They all had a transition of at least a year to working in the way we work. And these were men and women who were literally the top of their field. And then they came to us and was like, wow, the stuff that I did before is pretty good, but it doesn't work here. And they had to adapt to a smaller company that has fewer resources, uh, but very much moves more quickly. I often describe us as the Viet Cong rather than the American army in Vietnam, that we don't need to win a ground war. But what we do do, we have to do really, really well. Um, and kind of be aggressive, but also very buttoned up about it. Um, so uh, they very much uh, have to adapt. So what I look for is not necessarily their um, uh, kind of their experience. Like someone's running William Grant or Nestle or Godiva, they got the chops. They know exactly what to do. But I need to see that their ability to adapt, that they've adapted at some point in their life to something where that's going well. Hey, I need to do something differently uh, in order uh, to do it even better. And then it's just the stuff that's under the hood. It's like the burning desire to build something. I remember Mike during his interview, basically the reason that put him over the edge. The reason he got the job, put him over the edge. You know, I spent, I spent almost a year uh, recruiting for the job. Um, and then for the finalists, you know, I'd walk shell stores with them, like looking at things. And at one point Mike mentioned to me, he's like, I was like, you know what he wants? And he said to me, what I want to be able to do is walk down an aisle in a grocery store, maybe with a friend from Nestle, maybe with a wife, maybe myself and look at it and say, I did that. There wasn't a premium section of the mixer shelf until Mike Atkins got in the cockpit at Q Mixers and made it happen. And the fact that he was motivated by that rather than money or glory uh, or things that he could more readily uh, get at a different company uh, really 
stressed to me that he was the right person, that there was this internal need to kind of make something, to create something in the world that didn't exist before. Um, that's what he was motivated by. That types, those types of people are the ones who work well at our company. So in terms of coming from a big company, how you convince me to hire you, um, it's how do you get that sense? And look, it doesn't even need to be, oh, I did a Q4 uh, initiative that had 28% uh, increase in sales over last year. It's like, okay, yeah. But what I really am listening for is, are they getting off on the creating something new? Um, and if they have that, a lot of the other stuff can uh, can be worked on. Mm-hmm. That's great. And it's a, it's an inspiring story from Mike. Um, yeah. And it sounds like it was the right choice. It's, you know, it, you, yeah, you yeah. took a year to make that choice, but it was the right choice. So, oh, and then it took him a year to get up to, to full speed, if you admit it. Yeah. Um, and he needed to try stuff that worked at Nestle that didn't work with us. Um, but the fact that he was so driven by that internal need to create something uh, meant that he was going to fight through. Um, and get there on the end at the, at the end of the day. So Jordan, I know that we're coming up on time. I just had, I have one last question here, which is, you know, companies today are being looked to by any number of different stakeholder groups, you know, public interest groups, et cetera, to sort of do more or be more, you know, than just selling great products. And like in many cases, when we hear these stories, they are directed at the Coca-Colas, you know, the, the big companies. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm wondering is, are you feeling those same effects, you know, in a company, a, you know, a high growth mid-market company like yours? Um, and then how do you think about it in terms of your company's role in society besides just, you know, delivering a great product? Yeah. So it is something that we think about. And there's, I guess, two ways to think about it, right? One is kind of the marketing side of it. How do I get credit for it? And then the other side is, how do I feel good about what I am doing? Um, and I guess I focus more on the second part of that question. Uh, how do I make sure that I and everyone on our team feels uh, like we're doing something worth doing? Um, because every day you wake up and... I hit things really, really hard, and I hope and expect everybody on my team to do the same. And if you're doing shady stuff uh, that's just not cool, um, it's hard to get up. You can do it maybe one day, get a bonus that quarter, whatever. It's hard to keep going for 14 years on that. So um, kind of that's the kind of orientation that I take to it, um, kind of be an authentic force for good in the world. Um in every way you can. We cannot make the same carbon impact um, with a decision that Coke can. Mm. Coke can um, do one, you know, stop using paper clips at their office and probably save um, more metal uh, than we can save in, you know, a jillion years. Um, so uh, you got to look at the magnitude of what uh, our opportunity is. And therefore, I kind of more focus on kind of how do we be good, decent uh, people within our organization? How do we treat people right? How do we treat, treat the world right? Um, kind of for our own kind of uh, internal sake, if that, if that makes sense to you. 
Oh, it does. And, and, you know, I think it's a, a good reminder of, in particular, in your role, just the importance of setting a good example, you know, setting mm-hmm. the culture of doing the right thing and, and, and those kinds of things. So, yeah. um, Jordan, it's been really great hearing your story. It's amazing what you've built with Q Mixers. Um, you know, we don't often get to hear from people who really put their own blood, sweat and tears in, got it, got there on their own, you know, um, you know, thanks to their elbow grease and all of those good things. Yeah. And, and elbows. Um, yeah, and elbows. <laughs> it was elbows deep in it and all the other elbow analogies. Um, yes. so it's been really wonderful hearing your insights and, uh, we thank you for your time and we wish you the absolute best of luck in building Q mixers, uh, you know, in, into the future. All right. Thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us, please feel free to visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.